All right, let's turn to the Word of God. Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Genesis chapter 10, starting at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 9 of chapter 11. This is the Word of God. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togamar. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabtecha. And the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Resin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludim, Ananim, Lahabim, Naphtahim, Pathrasim, and Kasluhim, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtarim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And the children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arpaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmarveth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Abal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan, and their dwelling place was from Mesha as you go towards Sephar, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations, and from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech, And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. 
But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there, over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And our New Testament reading is Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And one more New Testament text, 1 Peter chapter 5, 5-7. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Let's pray. Please, O oh Lord, uh, bless your word to us now. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see wondrous things in your word. We pray that you would instruct us in the way we should go and let us not turn from it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. William Ernest Henley was a 19th century poet. Uh, as a teenager, um, he had to have his leg amputated because of a severe case of tuberculosis, and he almost lost the other leg, too. Um, he turned out to be uh, a good friend of Robert Louis Stevenson, author of Treasure Island, and William Ernest Henley, with his one leg, was the inspiration for Long John Silver in Treasure Island. But anyway, um, the one thing he's really known for now is, is one poem called 
Invictus. And let me read just a couple lines from that poem. It goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's a hymn to the strength of himself, right? And... uh, there is something about it that you're saying, life is tough, but I'm tougher. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, he, he's, uh, he's saying, I'm not afraid to die. I don't care what God requires of me. I'm going to do it my way, be my own man, and, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. It's a well-known poem. It uh, would have fit right in in the plain of Shinar. Uh, he wrote it in Victorian England, but it would have fit right in... Um, if he'd been living at the time of the Tower of Babel. Probably would have been a bestseller uh, in, 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 in uh, the city there around Babel. Because this is what is going on here in the Tower of Babel, and also in chapter 10, that long genealogy as well, the Table of Nations. So much of it is taken up with uh, 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 these two chapters together are about how intractably proud the human heart is. How, how, how proud we are. and How stubborn we are in our, in our pride. Um, Pride runs so deep, right? Right down to the very uh, spiritual DNA uh, 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 of our souls. And even though, right, the, the flood is right in the background. God has just judged the world, kind of wiped out all the, all, all, wiped out in a sense, the sinful, uh, all of sinful humanity. But um, it's right back to where it was when we get into chapter 10 and 11, right? Uh, and we don't see some of the things we saw before the flood so much. There's not the description of the violence that was there or uh, 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 the, the failure of the, the, of, the, um, uh, of the godly line or the sexual immorality that's going on. None of that comes into view here so much. But, but here is just... The, uh, we see the, the, the spread of sin and, and the spread of pride and, and a people united in their worship of themselves and the rebellion against God. And the situation here, in a sense, is almost worse than before the flood because there's no Noah. There's no exceptions held out. There's no Enoch who walked with God. There's no Noah who was blameless in his generation, right? It's just a whole catalog of uh, proud sinners. And so the question is, God already, he already you know, brought the flood and brought judgment, and people are still just as proud and sinful as before. What's he going to do? Now, with the human race. That's not just a historical question, right? Or an exegetical question. What's, what's he going to do in the text here? What's he going to, what, what's he do in history? This is the, this is the same problem we have, isn't it? Right? The, the pride in our culture. The pride in our world. Right? Our own, our own lives, our own hearts. Um, the pride we see impacting our marriages and our parenting and our relationships and our, uh, our, our work. All of it, um, uh, uh, we see in our own lives uh, the pride that is there. And so the question, a very relevant question from, uh, for the text will answer is, what is God going to do about our pride? That's the main thrust of the passage here. Looking into this, what is, how does God respond to pride? 
and how is he going to, how is he going to uh, deal with it? Um, we start with what's called the Table of Nations, chapter 10 there, that long genealogy. Um, uh, John Calvin has a wonderful series of sermons on Genesis, and um, he has a nice little comment on chapter 10. Uh, he says this. He says, at first sight, you might say that the, the description of these descendants of Noah in itself is useless. Um, thank you, Calvin. <laughs> I can sympathize, right? At first sight, we look at this, and Calvin says, you know, at first sight, you might look at chapter 10, long list of names, hard to pronounce, you don't know any of these folks, it's not your family tree, it's useless, right? Uh, What's the use of this part of Scripture? Even Calvin had to wrestle with this. Um, We're not alone when we come to a genealogy and we're stumped as to what the point is. Uh, but none of God's Word is useless, is it? Right? Every every bit of it's profitable. Uh, So... It might not all be, you know, Psalm 23, uh, but, but there's use here for us. There's relevance here for us, an application here for us. First thing to do um, uh, when we come to genealogies in the Bible, I think, you can, kinda, you can jump right in and look into the weeds, look into the details, but I think the first, the first good step is to kind of just take a step back, look at the big picture and say, well, why did the author put it here? I'm sure a genealogy wasn't, wasn't that much fun to write either, right? So I'm sure there's a purpose and a reason as to why the person who wrote it and did the research on it uh, put it in here. Um, and I'm sure the Holy Spirit, as he inspired it, had a purpose to this genealogy being here. So what was the purpose? Why did, Noah, uh, why did Moses put this in under inspiration of the Spirit? Um, well, it's the genealogy of Noah, as we see. Outlines his descendants for us. Um, all the nations of the world descended from these three men, and the genealogy is laying it out. And I think we see a four-part purpose. Four reasons why this genealogy, I think, is here. Um, first is this. It's the fulfillment of God's commandment in Genesis 9. So in Genesis chapter 9, right after the flood, what does God command Noah and his sons? Be fruitful and multiply. Right? Fill the earth. Um, and it looks at chapter 10, at least uh, at first, that uh, that man is obeying this, doesn't it? They're filling the earth. They're multiplying, right? Look at all these sons they're having, all these children they're having, and their children's children, and it's spreading out. And, and so some sense, we, we could see some measure of obedience even here. Um, but I, I don't think what we see is actually obedience. Yes, they're, they're, they're fulfilling God's commandment to multiply and to fill the earth, but what is the purpose of multiplying and filling the earth? Think back to Genesis chapter 1. What does God do there with Adam and Eve? He, he gives them the same command to be multiplying and filling the earth, but it comes right after he says that they're made in his image. They're made to reflect him, glorify him, praise him, And so I think the purpose of filling the earth is that you're filling the world with worshipers. You're filling the world with people who love the Lord, reflect his glory and the righteousness and goodness of their lives, um, that uh, they're they're to fill the world with those who are faithful to the Lord and worship his name and bring glory to him. So we bring that back, right, to to Genesis chapter 9, where God is giving this command to Noah and his descendants do it again. Fill the, fill the earth again. But he's saying, he reminds them again in chapter 9, you're, you're made in my image. And um, he, he, he wants them to fill the world with worshipers, with his glory. But what's happening here in chapter 10? Man is multiplying, but they're not filling the earth with worshipers, are they? Um, they're filling the world with blasphemers and idolaters. 
Uh, they're filling the world with, right, with, with sin and, and uncleanness, not righteousness and, and holiness. And that's what we see, the spread of these nations here. Um, some level of fulfilling God's commandment, but filling the world with those who are not honoring, serving, or praising him. That's the first thing I think the genealogy is doing, saying, so yes, they're filling the world, but they're filling it with, uh, with, with those who don't worship the Lord and reflect his glory. The second thing we see, I think, as part of the purpose of this genealogy is that it's the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 9. So God commanded Noah and his sons, be multiply and be fruitful. Um, but then he promised to be faithful. He promised to not judge the world again. He promised to sustain them. He promised to bring the turns of the, the seasons and continue to provide for, for them. And, uh, and what we see as the generations spread out uh, in chapter 10 is God's faithfulness. Even to these sinners who are filling the world with more sinners. It's a record of, of God's faithfulness, His common grace, generation after generation. Man's no less sinful, but God's grace continues. Um, we praise God so much for His saving grace, His special grace, right? The grace that regenerates our hearts and brings us into a relationship with Himself. And we should praise Him for that. But we should also praise Him for His common grace, which we're seeing here in chapter 10, right? That He makes the sun rise on a sinful, proud world that hates Him. He makes the rain fall, that He provides every bit of food on the grocery store shelves. It's because of His providence. Um, that, that, that every birth of every child is, 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 an, is His common grace to us. That he's still, you know, being long-suffering with us and continuing to give us so many blessings and continuing to give the world around us so many good things, so much help and so much prosperity. It's a measure of, of his faithfulness and his common grace. And I think that's another aspect of what we see in chapter 10. That's what he promised in his covenant with the world in chapter 9. And he's, we're seeing that filled out here in chapter 10 through this genealogy. Third thing that I think this genealogy is doing is that it's setting up the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So this is the war, of course, that God starts in Genesis 3 between, uh, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between uh, those who are, um, uh, who are faithful to him and those who are, who are sinners. And we traced a little bit of that before the flood, and now we see it's continuing after the flood. Uh, we see that here in, um, uh, in uh, the, the different descendants that are mentioned. Uh, Japheth is not given much time, uh, but Ham is given quite an extent of uh, attention here in the genealogy. And we see that his descendants are the Egyptians and the Assyrians and all those tribes of Canaan, all the ites that the Israelites are going to be uh, uh, fighting and, and oppressed by for so much of their history, um, and then we get so so all these all these nations that are going to be attacking Israel, persecuting Israel, fighting with Israel, coming from this line, um, and uh, we we get this highlighted in particular in verses eight through eleven with with this fellow named Nimrod, this guy who's described as a as a mighty hunter. He's described as a as a mighty man, as a hero, as a champion. Um, as a powerful leader, he rules Babel, and then he goes on, he rules many other cities, he, he builds other cities, he establishes Nineveh. In a sense here, he's presented as a, kind of an antichrist, right? This great, mighty hero, but he's doing it all for himself. 
He's not here to crush the serpent's head. He's here to, to lift himself up, champion his own, his own name, and uh, uh, filling the world with, with those who will serve him, not those who will worship, worship the Lord. And the, 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 the genealogy here spends so much time with him and his descendants and highlights Nimrod. And it's showing us, again, that spread of the sinful line and how the, the sinful line continues to multiply and seem even perhaps stronger and like it's going to overwhelm uh, the, the, faithful, uh, the faithful remnant. But then we get, right, we, then we get the descendants of Shem. And we see that uh, God here is preserving Shem's line too. Now remember at the end of chapter, uh, chapter 9, uh, uh, Ham sins grievously against his father. His father curses him, but blesses Shem especially. And uh, we see that blessing playing out here in the description of Shem's descendants. Shem is placed last, even though he's the oldest. His, his section of the genealogy comes last suggesting this is the climax here of, of this section, and that he is the one through whom, yes, God is saying, we just read all about Ham's descendants, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, all the Canaanites were going to oppress and war against you, uh, people of God, but God is faithful to his chosen line, the line of Shem. And no, there's no Enoch in it. There's no Noah. There's no standout righteous man. But God is continuing to be faithful to his promise. He's going to preserve a people through himself, and he's going to bring a savior through this line. Um, he's, going to, he's going to bring a savior. And interestingly, Shem's genealogy kind of cuts off. It mentions these two, these, these two brothers, Peleg and, uh, and Joktan, in, in verse 25. And we only get Joktan's descendants. We're going to wait on Peleg's until we get to chapter uh, 11, after the, bit of the, the, after the Tower of Babel. And we're going to find out that after a while of his descendants, we get to a certain man named Abram. And we're going to read about the Lord's faithfulness there. So all this is to say, right, this genealogy here, this, this section, is that God is not looking down at this spread of sin and this mighty, wicked Nimrod building all these cities to honor himself and uh, oppress the godly line. And God is not looking down at it, worried about what's going to happen. But he's sovereign over all of it. He, he, he's in control over all of it. And just as things seem to get darkest and there's no real bright light of, of faithfulness to him, he's going to continue his grace. And in just a couple of chapters, in chapter 12, we're going to see he is going to call out of this dark, idol-worshipping world a descendant of Shem named Abram. And the sin and pride of man is no match for his power or his mercy. All right, so those are some of the, the functions of the genealogy here. Genealogy in chapter 10. Let's turn now to chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. All right, so verse 1, digging into chapter 11. Verse 1 tells us the earth has one language. Well, that means they're able to work together easily. They're able to communicate easily. They all share a common language, common culture. Um, then verse 2 tells us that they are journeying eastward. Um, in Genesis, that's an, important, that's an important flag. When someone's moving east, uh, it's, a, it's a move away from God's presence, a move away from his blessing. Uh, so they, they, aren't, um, they aren't seeking out God's blessing. They're not seeking out faithfulness to him. They're, they're moving away from him uh, through, through that note. These early descendants aren't immediately obeying his command to fill the earth. They, they settle down in this plain of Shinar, 
God has told them to, to spread out and fill the earth, but they're going to hunker down in Shinar and uh, uh, um, they're going to try to make a name for themselves, fill the city. And this is what we see in verses 3 and 4. They say to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Two things about their pride to note here. First, in their pride, what are they trying to do? Build a city whose top is in the heavens. What's going on here? They're not just trying to get the Guinness Book of World Records tallest building um, after the flood. They're trying to get to heaven, aren't they? Right, they're, they're, they're trying to get, to get eternal life. They're trying to uh, get up to where God himself is. This goes right back to the uh, beginning of Genesis, doesn't it? Right? God creates man for fellowship in his heavenly presence. Adam and Eve sinned, and they're, they're banished from that, and they lose uh, the, their, their, their hope of, e- of eternal life. And uh, 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 it's because of their disobedience that, uh, that they lose that hope. Satan, Satan tempts them in that, with that very thing. He says, you don't have to obey to get eternal life and be like God and have fellowship with God. Disobey and, and you'll, 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 you'll usurp God and take his, his place. So the people of Babel are in essence thinking to themselves as they, they're building this tower whose top is in the heavens, let's just go take it for ourselves. Right? We don't have to, to wait patiently for God to bring a Messiah to bring us into eternal life. We'll go get it for ourselves now. Uh, we don't have to obey the Lord and fear the Lord and keep covenant to the Lord. We can just do it ourselves. Get eternal life for ourselves. So that's the first reason uh, they're building this tower. First part of their pride. Second is that they want to make a name for themselves. They want heaven. They want immortality. They also want God's glory for themselves. They want the worship. They want the fame. Um, they are rejecting humble obedience. They are rejecting the fact that God is the creator and they're the creature. And they're flipping that and saying, no, we'll, 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 take, we'll take his place. Grasping at glory for themselves. So both of these marks of their pride are, are un, uh, they're interestingly familiar, uh, aren't they? Um, I think we see the same in, in our culture. Um, people are still trying to find uh, um, eternal life by another way than Christ has provided. We still try to use technology to increase our power and bring us more comfort and bring us more health and bring us longer lives. And uh, we try to come up with new systems of government to create a utopia, right? And it's re- essentially the same thing as the people of Babel are doing, attempting to get heaven on our own strength and by our own resources, it's what they are doing. It's what we are trying to do as well. We see it all around us. Um, and, and, and we want the glory for ourselves, the fame of God given to us. We want others to respect us, others to be amazed at us. This past week I was reading uh, Frog and Toad to my kids. Um, you know those stories about Frog and Toad. There's one where Toad has a dream. And um, in this dream, he is the greatest Toad in all the world. And he dreams this. A strange voice from far away said, Presenting the greatest toad in all the world. Toad took a deep bow. 
Toad will now play the piano very well, said the voice. Toad played the piano, and he did not miss a note. Frog cried Toad. Can you play the piano like this? No, said Frog. Toad will now dance, and he will be wonderful, said the voice. Frog, can you be as wonderful as this, said Toad, as he danced across the stage. That's pride, right? Um, that's what's going on in Babel, right? To be the most wonderful, to get the respect and the praise and the glory, uh, whether we want it out in the open or whether we just want it quietly from others, that, that respect, it's still pride, isn't it? Um, it's the glory that belongs to God, the credit that belongs to God alone. So that's the pride we see there in Babel, we see it in ourselves, we see it in our world. What does God do about it? What does he do with Babel? Verse 5. Verse 5 is a critical verse here in the account. This story is structured as a chiasm, uh, which is sort of like a mirroring structure where you have, uh, it's all, sort of like a sandwich. You've got bread, meat, and bread, right? And that thing in the middle is what the outside things are pointing to. Um, that's, that's sort of what's going on here in the story. Uh, verse 5 is the, the heart, the center here that the, the rest of the text is pointing to and mirroring. Um, verse 5 is the center, and it says this, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. It's dripping with irony. Uh, it, it's, it's supposed to make you chuckle, I think. The Lord, so, so man's building this, man's building this great tower. And the Lord has to come down to see it. Um, uh, uh, man, man, man is going to storm the gates of heaven. Man's going to make a name for himself. Man's going man's to get immortality. And God says, where? I, I missed it. I can't see it. Right? Your effort is so puny, so little, so weak. God has to come down. You are nowhere near heaven. God has to come down to see it. Get out a microscope and look hard for this great babble. Um, the text points out that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men, right? Creatures, weak men, had built. The Lord sees their wickedness. He sees their pride. He sees their rebellion. He determines to scatter them across the world by confusing their languages. Um, they use their words to plan this tower, to lay their strategies for building it. Now God's going to take that away from them. They won't be able to use their words to, to do this again, to bind together and make a name for themselves again. So he, he, uh, he's going to separate them by confusing their languages. They have made a name for themselves, in a sense, but the name is the one God, uh, that comes from God's judgment on them. Right? They have the name Babel. People know the story. But it's a story of shame and embarrassment and a reminder of God's power and, and their folly and failure and shame. The point, the point here is just this, that God is sovereign, that he destroys the proud, he judges the proud. Uh, this, this city is going to later become known as Babylon. Uh, it will raise up its head in, in pride. It will harass God's people. Its kings will boast that they are mightier than God himself. Uh, 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 but but how is it going to end? With that kingdom, like every other kingdom that raises its head against God's people, judged, destroyed. Um, that's how pride always ends, under the judgment of God. He who sits in heavens laughs at them. We are living in a babble, aren't we? Um, much, much like there's uh, a world set against the Lord, 
and set against the people of God, set against the church. Um, temptation is to doubt that God will, uh, will bring judgment in his time. Um, there's a babble in our hearts, too, um, as we said earlier, right? We have this pride, this, this pride that is so deeply rooted in us uh, that makes, us, uh, makes it so we don't want to ask for forgiveness, makes us afraid of the opinions of others, uh, uh, makes us put ourselves first, put others last. Um, the story of Babel is a warning to us. This is how pride ends, right? If you're going to take this road of, of rebellion against God, saying, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, I decide how I live, then the end of that is just going to be judgment and destruction. So Babel is a, Babel's a warning, right? It's, it's, a, it's a billboard. This is what happens when you are proud against the Lord um, and against his people. So what do we do with that? We look at it and say, well, I'm going to work harder at humility this week. I'm going to pull myself up with my bootstraps, and I'm going to be humbler this week. I'm going to will myself to be more humble. Well, it's good to resolve for holiness, but a resolution like that's bound to fail, isn't it? Um, our pride is a lot more deeply rooted than that, right? It runs all the way down, and we can't just resolve to do better at humility. Um, it's going to take some uh, something much more significant, much more... Uh, much more powerful than our wills to conquer. What does God do to deal with our pride? Graciously, he doesn't bring judgment on us um, in Christ. Um, he will bring judgment at the end on all those who are proud against him. But, but he does something else first. Right? There's another instance in Scripture where God comes down, isn't there? Where he comes down, condescends, not to bring judgment but to humble himself, right? Jesus Christ. We read this, Philippians 2. Consider the difference between the men of Babel and ourselves and our Lord Jesus, right? Men of Babel, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to grasp that glory. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to take heaven by disobedience. And that's what we all do as well. But then our Lord Jesus let me read right from Philippians 2. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had every right to be in heaven and to enjoy that position and to stay there in his glory in the presence of God. But he doesn't grasp at it. He humbles himself. Comes down. Becomes a servant. Becomes a foot washer. Uh, become, becomes one who's going to take up the cross and die for our sins. Bearing our guilt. Bearing our shame. Being buried in the earth. Going through the very experience of the wrath of God poured out on him through hell itself. And he's doing it all, right? At his, 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 his mind-blowing humility for sinners who are proud, like us. That's what it takes to save us from our pride. Right? That, that's, that's how God deals with our pride. He shows us what real humility is in Jesus Christ. And loved ones, the more we come to treasure and to know and understand Christ's humility for our sakes, right? that, that's what will start to get to work in, in the deep 
structures of our hearts, which are so captured by pride. It's when we come to know Jesus Christ and his humility and his obedience to his Father uh, uh, that, that, that we see that, um, uh, that, 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 that that's what begins to change us from the inside out. Uh, to, that, that attitude starts to work out in us uh, of humble obedience as well. Um, uh, when, we, when we see Christ, we see that the path to heaven could only be opened by humble obedience, the humble obedience of Jesus Christ. Glory is still held out. Eternal life is held out, but it's through his obedience, through our union with him. This is what God has done for us. This is what God has done in us, right, by his spirit, uh, giving us union with Christ, making us, remaking us in his image, saving us from our pride, right, not counting the sin of our pride against us, uh, but but calling him, uh, calling us uh, to come and have uh, have have eternal life through the obedience of Jesus Christ. So look long and hard at Christ. All right, that's how we deal with pride. We look long and hard at Christ. We come to know Him more deeply and understand His obedience and His humility for our sakes. So yes, pay attention to the warning that we see in Babel of how God judges pride. Um, But as we do that, look also to Jesus Christ and see how God has saved us from pride. Let me close with the words of 1 Peter 5, which we read earlier. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sweet and gracious humility of our Savior for us. Lord, we we are so thankful for him. Lord, work that in us. Lord, we have seen it in him. We we, we know it in him. And that's all our salvation. That's that's what everything depends on. But Lord, work it also in us, um, that, that humility, that lowliness before you, And Lord, help us to wait patiently uh, under under your mighty power, waiting, waiting for the day you will exalt us and glorify us together with Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.